Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more for way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long for just $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash ConcertWeek to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash ConcertWeek to buy now. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Alcantara, Soroka, you look so good in Boca. Peralta, Manoa, Balsak, Ferrerinola, Gilito, Castillo, Yoshida, Mosusito, to Fantasy Baseball today on February 2nd. I am Frank Stample, joined by Scott White and Chris Towers. Today on the show, it's our first mailbag of the offseason, plus we have a new segment, Prospect Spotlight. But holy crap, the Orioles just traded for Corbin Burns. We're sitting there mock drafting, having a grand old time, and boom, we get hit with a Ken Rosenbaum. The Orioles acquired... (laughs) 2021 Cy Young winner Corbin Burns in exchange for two prospects, infielder Joey Ortiz and pitcher D.L. Hall, plus the 34th overall pick in the 2024 draft. That new ownership group in Baltimore didn't waste any time. (laughs) Let's talk about Corbin Burns. He is entering a contract year and will do it in the pitcher-friendly confides of Camden Yards, which kind of sounds weird to say. But it is true. They were 22nd in home run park factors last year compared to American Family Field out in Milwaukee, which had the ninth highest home run park factor. So it's a great park switch here for Corbin Burns. He is, however, moving from the National League Central to the much tougher American League East. Scott, let's start with you. Your immediate reaction, Corbin Burns, to the Baltimore Orioles. My immediate reaction was what the crap, because <laughs> I, I thought we had we had kind of abandoned hope for a Corbin Burns trade happening. And the Brewers had just added Reese Hoskins and it looked like they were going for it again in the NL Central. And based on the return they got for Corbin Burns, maybe they should have just tried to go for it in the NL Central. But we'll get to that uh, for Burns. I think this is only good news. Um, yes, it's true. He goes to a tougher division. It's a balanced schedule now. Yeah, he only started 10 games against the NL Central last year. 
Yeah. And I, yeah, I, I just think that's not as important as some other factors in play here. One of them being he goes from a fringe contender to what in my mind is now the AL favorites. The Orioles are loaded for bear. They won 101 games last year without Burns, without Jackson Holiday, and now both are going to be in the mix, obviously. They have more hitters than they know what to do with. They're going to score a ton of runs. Burns is going to benefit from all of that. Uh, he wasn't in a bad situation with the Brewers, but he couldn't ask for a much better situation than what he, what he gets in Baltimore now. Plus, he goes from one of the most hitter-friendly parks to one of the most pitcher-friendly parks. And at first, I, I, did, I wasn't making much of that because, okay, historically, Burns has been a big bat misser and he's not vulnerable to fly balls. And so how mu- for that profile, how much of a difference would it actually make? But I will point out that at home last year, Burns had a 4.28 ERA. For his career, his ERA at home is 75 points, about 75 points higher at home than on the road. So, you know, pitching at American Family Field hasn't been great for him historically. Also, StatCast estimates that if he had pitched every game at Camden Yards last year, he would have allowed seven fewer home runs, which is significant. So I, I, I think there's tangible value just in the park shift for Burns, too. So I think it's enough. I had him fifth in my starting pitcher rankings. Uh, you know, we've talked before about how there isn't a clear number three this year behind Spencer Strider and Garrett Cole. I'm not saying Burns needs to be drafted alongside Spencer Strider and Garrett Cole, but I do think he's probably the clear number three now with this move. Chris, I've brought some of my concerns up on recent podcasts regarding Corbin Burns. Just things that I've noticed the past couple of years, things that are trending in the wrong direction, strikeouts and walks, obviously a 12.2% swinging strike rate last year for Corbin Burns, still very good by, you know, pitcher standards, but it, it, it was a career low for Corbin Burns. So talk to me about what you think has been happening with Corbin Burns. Are you worried about it at all? And this move over to the Baltimore Orioles. Yeah, I mean, he lost what about a mile per hour on his fastball last season so if you're looking for an explanation as to why he might have been getting half. fewer strikeouts about it half, like half. Okay. it started out as one in april yeah. but then he picked up half a mile the rest yeah. of the season and so you know that that's probably if you're looking for why he was a slightly less dominant strikeout pitcher last season maybe that's the explanation but i don't know how much i care about that um just because and, and i said this with garrett cole the other day where like we are talking about a yes there is a threat right he's gone from 35.6 percent strikeout rate in 2021 to 30.5 percent in 2022 to 25.5 i guess that's a trend 2023 is the only one that's alarming and even that feels like the wrong word because a 26 percent strikeout rate is still very good a 31 percent strikeout rate like he had in 2022 is tremendous so like i tend to think it's more of a one-year thing and he offset that with improvements in terms of the quality of contact that he allowed last year in a way that makes me think that it's not really a concern i i think the the park shift like we've said is incredibly strong you look at the the results for baltimore's pitchers since the start of 2022 when they moved their their fences back Generally speaking, we want three years at least for park factors to to feel confident in them because they're they're fairly noisy stats. We only have two here, so I, I think I don't want to overreact too much. But 
Over the past two seasons, Orioles pitchers collectively have a 411 ERA on the road, 377 at home. That's not an insignificant gap. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that Corbin Burns is absolutely the number three starting pitcher right now. I, I had him number three in points. I think he was number five in Roto. I, even in just looking at it, I, I just kind of realized I, I probably should have had him number three to begin with. But now I think he's, like Scott said, a clear number three. I think he's not in the Strider, Garrett Cole range. I think he's at the top of the next tier and, and potentially in a, a half tier of his own. And I should mention, because forgive me if you did mention it, the second half stats for Burns. Yes. Even though the you, you did mention it or no? No, I, I did. Okay. Yeah, even though, so even though the overall numbers were down much better in the second half as he regained some of the velocity on that cutter, he had a 271 ERA, uh, 0.99 whip, and 10.2 strikeouts per nine innings. So that that felt a lot more like Corbin Burns. Yeah, 28.6% strikeout rate. Not quite 2022 levels, but close enough that it, it if he had struck out 29% of batters last season, nobody would have blinked. According to Fantasy Pros ADP, which takes the average draft position from five different websites so far, uh, Burns is going as the 20th player off the board, the SP3 behind only Spencer Schrider and Garrett Cole. You guys agree that Burns should be the SP3. I put out a poll on Twitter asking that exact question between Zach Wheeler, Gosman, Corbin Burns, Castillo, who should go first of that group. And Corbin Burns is running away with it. 51% of the vote. I think there's probably some, uh, you know, excitement about the trade and, you know, maybe your people are clicking on Burns, but it feels like that it's probably going to wind up being the case that Burns will wind up being the SP three in most drafts this up- upcoming season. Before we move over to the Brewers, just an update on the Orioles' projected rotation. Corbin Burns up at the top, Grayson Rodriguez, Kyle Bradish, John Means, and then one of Dean Kramer or Tyler Wells as their SP5. They also have pitching depth in the minors, some prospects, Chase McDermott and Cade Povich too. So, man, the Orioles are set up real well right now. Scott, you mentioned you think they should be the favorite to win the uh, American League at this point. I did look up some betting odds, and uh, they are tied for the third best odds to win the American League. Uh, behind the Astros and the Yankees. It's, the Yankees probably shouldn't be ahead of them, but <laughs> that's just the, that's just the betting market. That's they always prop up the Yankees because people bet on the Yankees anyway, even though they shouldn't. Let's talk about the return in this trade. The prospect package seemed a little light to me. I mean, the Brewers also got the 34th pick um, and it is only one year of Corbin Burns. He's entering a contract year, so I get that, but. Still seems a little bit light. Let's talk about it. Joey Ortiz, a 25-year-old infielder who's played all over the diamond and is regarded as a great defender. Seems like he has a solid bat. Last year in 88 games at AAA, he hit 321 with nine homers, 30 doubles, 11 steals, and an 885 OPS. DL Hall was the other piece, a 25-year-old pitcher, former top pitching prospect, has struggled mightily with control and injuries but there is an opportunity here in the Brewers rotation. Scott, talk to me about the return. Again, it felt a little bit light to me. And if you think any of these guys could have value with the Brewers, Joey Ortiz and Dio Hall. I think they could. I, I do think it was an underwhelming return considering the Brewers were giving up one of the one of the few surefire aces in the game today. 
uh, Ortiz and Hall. Hall technically doesn't qualify as a prospect anymore, but if he did, they would both be like fringe top 100 guys. Mm-hmm. And they've lost some of their luster since they've appeared in the majors and, and it, for the most part, hasn't gone well. Um, that that tends to to cost prospects some some value. But I do think there's upside here for both. And I do think the Brewers present a great opportunity for both that they were never going to get with the Orioles. I think part of what's held back D.L. Hall's development is that the Orioles, he's, he's more of a project than a team in the Orioles position could take on. He has an incredible fastball, but the control issues you mentioned, the, the uh, health issues further stunting his development. He did kind of get in a groove last year. They brought him up to use him out of the bullpen in 18 appearances, a 326 ERA, a 119 whip, 10.7 K per nine. So you see the potential right there. What was most notable, I think though, about that 18 appearance stint, 65% of his pitches for strikes, which is certainly good enough. You have stuff as good as Hall as you throw 65% of your pitches for strikes. That'll play if he, if it wasn't just a small sample fluke, it was, um, a sign of Hall turning the corner. The Brewers have a great track record developing pitchers like this. So uh, I don't know that he'll be durable enough to to hold up as a starter. I don't even really know what the Brewers' plans are for real, him, really. But I think spring training will tell us a lot about D.L. Hall's immediate fantasy potential. And then as far as Joey Ortiz goes, and I'll note, he's Joseph Joseph. Ortiz in our player database. I was wondering why it didn't make the hyperlink when I was writing about him earlier. Right. It's, it sounds like you're angry when you talk about it, right? Joseph Ortiz. Joseph. I just wanted to stress it. Joseph. Joseph. Yeah, about him. So I did not include him in my top 100 prospects. The minor league numbers, you know, he makes good contact, uh, hit for average. The home runs and stolen bases underwhelming. I took a look, though, at his some of the underlying data, the the uh, exit velocity readings and such from his time at AAA. And at AAA this year, Joey Ortiz had an average exit velocity of 90 miles per hour, a max exit velocity of almost 115 miles per hour. That'll play. And a zone contact rate of almost 90%. Like those last two numbers in particular are elite. He needs to hit more fly balls, but like that's that's more potential offensive potential than uh, Ortiz's five foot nine frame would suggest. And you look at the uh, the the Brewers infield; it's pretty wide open too. We like Tyler Black. We'll get to him a little later. We like Tyler Black, hopefully to uh, enter into the picture at third base. But Ortiz could play anywhere on the infield in second base. Bryce Terang there, you know that didn't go so well last year. Um, and I think Ortiz would represent an upgrade. So I, I think Ortiz becomes a in deeper rotisserie leagues, a, a potential late round target. Now I do want to mention also, I, I moved on from the pitching, but Brewers pitching is, they got nothing beyond yeah, Freddie that's Peralta. Pr- that's Freddie good. Peralta, Wade Miley, and then nothing. That's part of the reason why I like DL Hall's opportunity as well as Aaron Ashby coming back from surgery. Remember him? Yep. Uh, Robert Gasser, a pretty interesting prospect, could factor. Spring for for the for the pitching options there. Spring training is going to tell us a lot. I mean, but I, I think Joe, more immediately, Joey Ortiz is somebody to note. Joe Ross is currently slated in as their number four starter. 
according to roster resource. Joe, that Joe Ross. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The one who was like kind of interesting seven years ago, eight years ago. Um, yeah. So, yeah, things are pretty grim in the rotation for them. I, I think both Hall and Ortiz, if you wanted to throw a, a late round dart at either of them, I, I think it's perfectly reasonable. I, I can't say they're going to be my favorite sleepers among either the infield or the starting pitcher cohort, but Hall should be, he's a, he's a spark on CBS, I mean, right? He, he only appeared in release he's, last. Yeah. Year. He's all RP eligible. So yeah, that helps in a points league. Although points is a shallower format. You only draft what 250 something players. You, so it's, you generally go deeper into the yeah. pitching pool though. Yeah. So it's, mm-hmm. If he wasn't a Sparp, I'm not sure he'd get drafted, but I think it's worth the the flyer on either of them. I think Ortiz is probably the higher likelihood to make an impact because Hall's walk rates throughout the minors were pretty consistently in the five range per nine, which is just, that's untenable as a starter. Yeah. But I hope either of them figures it out. It's a, it's a cheap investment in either way. Yeah, I think there are more ripple effects, too. I mean, is this a sign that the Brewers are going to start to kind of tear things down? It's kind of weird because, like you said, Scott, they brought in Reese Hoskins. They still have Yelich, so they have some veterans. Not sure they completely tear it down, but if they go in that direction, Devin Williams, that's a name to watch. I think Willie Adamas entering a contract here, also another name to watch. Mm -hmm. Uh, Two names that maybe could be on the move here for the uh, Milwaukee Brewers as well. I also think... Everybody whose team is in contention because Burns is an impending free agent. I get that. Every but every every fan out there whose team in, is in contention though should be mad that their team wasn't able to beat this offer because it was, uh, you know, we like you said we were mock drafting at, when it happened and we were all speculating what the return was and people were like uh, Heston Kirstad, give yourself a, give yourself a pat on the back, Scotty. Do I it. said what? Yeah. <laughs> True. I said, watch it be somebody dumb like Joey Ortiz, like Joey Ortiz in a reliever. Exactly that's, right. That's basically what it was. Yeah, that's exactly what it was. Uh, I will say for DL Hall, from a dynasty perspective, I play. I only have one dynasty league <laughs> playing Scott White Dynasty League. I have DL Hall. While it's a bad park shift, he now has the opportunity to start. So I think long term, mm-hmm. this could turn out to be a good thing for DL Hall in a dynasty league. Uh, finally getting that opportunity. So I'm I'm pretty excited for him uh, in that format as well. Again, the big news here, massive news. Corbin Burns traded to the Baltimore Orioles in exchange for Joey Ortiz, D.L. Hall, plus the 34th overall pick in this year's MLB draft. As I've been teasing recently, we'll highlight one top prospect per week right here on the mailbag. Thanks to our new sponsor, Worn by players like Michael Harris to meet the demand of elite ball players, the New Balance Fuel Cell 4040 V7 is a versatile option. The 4040 V7 is built for the athlete who needs responsiveness and ability to cut and run at their full speed. The model features a fuel cell foam underfoot and a synthetic and mesh upper to provide breathability, comfort, and a snug fit as you round the bases. The fuel cell midsole features nitrogen-infused foam specifically designed to propel athletes forward. Learn more about the 4040 at newbalance.com. Let's stick with the Brewers as today we're focusing on third base prospect Tyler Black. He was sent in from one of our listeners, Chris Bosworth, and we do appreciate it. Tyler Black The 33rd overall pick in the 2021 draft, a little bit older at 23 years old. He had a huge breakout season last year. 284 batting average, 18 homers, 55 steals with a 930 OPS 
in 123 games, 39 of those coming at AAA. He walks a ton, actually had more walks than strikeouts at AAA, a 428 on base percentage. Chris, this seems like a skill set that should translate very favorable to fantasy Tyler Black of the Brewers. Yeah, I, I struggle because like he did 18 home runs last season. When you look into the, the quality of contact metrics, it's, it's pretty bad. 109 mile per hour, max EV. That's not horrible, but it's not very good. 86 mile per hour average exit velocity, and that's in AAA against AAA pitching. So, you know, when, when you think about like, like it feels a little, I don't know, like Zach Geloff E in that, like it's, it's maybe fringe power, more speed here, great on base skills. It's, it kind of, I don't know. He, he's a weird prospect. I feel like when, when you look at like the combination of skills, cause he's a corner infielder who stole 55 bases last season, walks a ton hit for power for the first time since college last year. I think the power is probably a little bit of a fake out, but if he can keep the rest of those skills, you know, if he can be a 35 stolen base guy who gets on base a ton, that's still really interesting. The problem is you come to the plate with 86 mile per hour average exit velocity. Pitchers are going to challenge you. And can he keep that walk rate? That's always one thing I worry about when you're talking about guys with really good plate discipline who don't hit for a lot of power in the minors is, well, you can get away with that when guys don't know where their pitchers are going. I would what be, happens against major league pitching? I, I would be curious to see what the exit velocity readings were at AA, which is where Black spent most of last season. Mm-hmm. He, he got 39 games at AAA, 84 at AA. We only have the exit velocity data for AAA. So that's unfortunate. I, you know, the scouting reports basically say the same thing. Not sure if that 18 homer total from Black is something he can sustain. He did have a very high fly ball rate at double A, and he is going to play in a park that amplifies power. So mm-hmm. hopefully those working together can make Black, Tyler Black, enough of a, uh, you know, a, a 15 to 20 homer guy. I think that's within the realm of possibility. And, and if he's doing that kind of damage on contact, then uh, it'll get a chance for his louder skills to <laughs> to play up to make some noise he'll he'll he's among the best walkers of any minor leaguer 88 times last year he's among the best base dealers of any minor leaguer 55 times last last year i do wonder if this acquisition of joey ortiz prevents black from from making the opening day roster maybe the brewers do want to give bryce terang more time and ortiz fits more in at third base but if they wanted to get both Black and Ortiz in the lineup, there is a possibility for that. And um, I like Black as sort of a late-round flyer uh, in, in Roto Leagues, especially because of that steals potential. Uh, and you know, obviously, as things play out this spring, that'll help bring his exact value into focus. I think spring training is going to matter a lot for these guys, just in determining which prospects make the opening day roster, which ones don't. I just want to quickly mention uh, Tyler Black, again, has played all over the diamond. First base, second base, third base, and yep. center field. He already has been invited to Brewers uh, spring training. So he's going to be out there. He's going to be playing. Uh, Chris, you could touch on it as well. I was going to ask a similar question. You know, Between Joey Ortiz and Andrew Monasterio currently... Uh, penciled in there at third base. The team does still have Willie Adamas. If they don't trade Adamas before opening day, 
I could see it maybe being a little bit tough for Tyler Black to be on that roster. Yeah, I think the the center field experience that he got last year is pretty interesting, although obviously we're assuming Jackson Churio is going to be playing center for the Brewers on opening day. But, you know, maybe there's room in right field. I don't know, because Sal Freelix there. It, it's it's kind of, you know, I was going to say when Joey Ortiz, when we were talking about him, like he got traded from a an Orioles team where he's like so blocked that there was no path. To a Brewers team where he's not blocked, but he's just kind of surrounded by a lot of samey, like fringe-ish prospects. And I think Tyler Black is also in that discussion. I I would think that there's a lot of disagreement among scouting types about Tyler Black, and it might depend on what day you see him. And if you saw him at AAA versus AA, because I I think the the power is going to be a a real determining factor here, and it, it might end up being a kind of super utility profile, but Edward Julian with some speed also isn't a bad thing either. You know? All right. I think you're underselling Julian there. Sure. Sure. But like, you know, in terms of the, the very OBP heavy approach, maybe less power, but more speed. Okay. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American express business gold card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. And remember, if you want to hear about a specific top prospect on a future mailbag, leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcast. Drop the prospect's name in the review. And again, we will get to it. We've got uh, one mailbag coming out every week until the season starts. Let's take our first break. When we return, on to the mailbag right after this. Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or property, it's the location and neighborhood. Homes.com offers in-depth neighborhood guides with detailed video overviews, comprehensive narratives, and unbiased information from a multitude of sources. You thought we go in-depth with player analysis on Fantasy Baseball today? You haven't seen anything yet. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood complete with a video guide. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. When looking at local schools, they offer test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, this is everything you need to know, all in one place. Homes.com. We've done your homework. The all-new Hyundai 2024 Santa Fe is equipped with everything you need to break free from the dull work week and embark on an adventurous weekend with your family. The all-new Hyundai Santa Fe's features like available H-Track all-wheel drive, standard third-row seating, available dual wireless charging pads. Nothing beats a weekend away with the family in the great outdoors, whether it's camping, hiking, river rafting, or anything in between. With third-row seating, nobody is left out. The entire family can experience the thrill together, and nobody wants a dead phone. Available dual wireless charging pads make it so nobody gets stuck, and we can check our fantasy baseball teams together. 
Learn more about the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe at HyundaiUSA.com. Call 562-314-4603 for complete details. Welcome back in. On to the mailbag we go, and we'll start with our Apple Podcast review questions. This one is from Body Bag 6 Remember, this is a family show. Hi there, Stump, Buck, and Joe. Are these Yankees managers? That's the only thing that's coming up. Buck Showalter, Joe. Buck Showalter, Stump Merrill. That was uh, he. He managed the Yankees for 275 incredibly memorable games between the 1990 (laughs) and 1991 seasons. Yeah, that's the only thing that came up when I. Uh, that sounds right. Yeah, that's that's the only thing I could think of. Any general advice for in-season management of your roster? I feel like I never know when to bench or cut a struggling player who was supposed to be a major contributor or when to pick up slash start a guy who is hot but was not higher regarded, highly regarded entering uh, coming into the season. Do you guys have any guidelines or rules you follow when it comes to these decisions? Scott, the first thing that came to mind is how every year we have to talk so many people off the ledge early on in the season, and we usually wait till Memorial Day, right? That's kind of the time where, all right, big-name players, top 50 picks, whatever it might be, let's give them to Memorial Day. Two months, figure out what's going on with these players, and then we make decisions after that. As for the starter-sit stuff, I mean, a lot of it is, you know, uh, matchups, maybe uh, reading Scott's weekly planner or something like that, but... uh those were some things that I thought of. Yeah, to some degree, and 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 this question is is kind of hard to answer because it depends on what how deep your league is, what sort of league you're playing in. Uh, obviously, for for start sit, there is a caliber of hitter or pitcher, even really, that you never sit, regardless of what the matchups are, uh, regardless of how they've been performing recently. It's it's just never a consideration because they're liable to to go off one week and that's the week you you sat them and and you're kicking yourself for not getting everything that you invested in so i i don't even mess with the upper levels the, the sort of the upper tiers at at each position and again what exactly that means when i refer to upper tiers depends on how deep the league is what kind of alternatives we're talking about on your bench etc Another piece of general advice that applies, I think, early in the season is, okay, so on your roster, you know you have players you're heavily invested in, high-end types, ones that deserve an incredibly long leash, and then you have the caliber of player that isn't that different from what's on the waiver wire, isn't, isn't... so high end that if they're struggling and you drop them, they would automatically be picked up. And again, I can't say exactly what that caliber of player is for your league in particular. You just kind of have to know by experiencing your league in the past, what sort of player I'm talking about. So I would, I, I tend to be really aggressive on waivers early in the year when there is some new exciting option emerging unless it's just like an obvious fluke, I try to make a play for him and I'm willing to swap out that sort of player I'm talking about who, you know, if, if 
they're struggling and they wouldn't automatically be picked up if you dropped them because they're just not that caliber of player. And I, I think you can kind of observe this phenomenon just by monitoring roster trends in your league, how rostered this player is that you're considering dropping. If it's over mm-hmm. 90%, okay, maybe hold on a little longer. If it's under 70%, you're probably fine letting them go. Uh, and, and that way you give yourself more opportunities at the breakout players without necessarily losing anything that you'll regret giving up. Because if that player you drop then heats up, you'll probably still have a chance to act on that. Chris, I do think it's a really tough thing to answer. I think, uh, like Scott said, it depends on the league size. I think in shallower leagues, maybe you're a little bit more aggressive early on in the season mm-hmm. with some of those fringe players on your roster. It gets tougher the deeper you go, right? If you play in 14-team, 15-team leagues or anything deeper, AL, NL only, you don't want to drop players that have a role on their respective team, even though they might be struggling because, again, it's just so hard to find guys like that. And you know, eventually they can pick it up. So... Man, I think the deeper you go, I think you have to be a little bit more prudent in, in trying to figure out who you're dropping each week. It's it's tough. Yeah, if, if you'll allow me a little bit of introspection, I, I would say we are talking about what I think is probably my biggest weakness as a fantasy player. And conversely, I think is also one of my biggest strengths as a fantasy analyst, which is that I tend to keep a pretty even keel when it comes to reacting to small sample sizes. And I think that pays off a lot when we're talking about, you know, the, the guy who's had a really good three weeks and, and we get really excited. And I, I think I tend to do a good job of, of not getting too high or too low when those things happen. On the other hand, when you are playing fantasy baseball, you can't just roll through the whole season with the roster that you drafted because you liked those guys and the sample size is too small to react. You know, you do have to react to what you're seeing. And it's like we were talking about thinking yesterday's podcast. It's not a science. There is no one right answer that I can say. Everyone drafted after 182nd overall, you can cut after a bad two weeks to start the season. And everybody before that, you just start like that's not how it works. It's 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 uh, it's an art like it's there's there's a feel to it there and it's really difficult and it's something I really struggle with as a player and it's why frankly like I enjoy analyzing fantasy baseball kind of more than I like playing it because I find the 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 actual like the roster management of it incredibly difficult exactly for this reason because keeping too even of a keel when you're talking about managing your fab and, and your waiver wire, like you're just going to miss out on those handful of difference makers who come alive on the waiver wire every year. And so it's, it's something that I, that I personally really struggle with every year. And, and I don't have a good answer for it. If you've got a good answer, please let me know. <laughs> well, we spent about like five, six, seven minutes talking about it. So I hope we gave some good answers in that analysis. Now let's move on to the emails. Fantasy baseball at CBSI.com. That's the letter I. And again, that's the email address you could send your questions into. Just a heads up for future mailbag podcasts. I'm not going to choose many or really any keeper questions. I just don't know how helpful they are. I'll still answer your keeper questions like on the side. I'll just respond to your email. But if you want your question read on the show, try to think of something specific player analysis wise or if you got a trade or something or like that. Just like 
not like should I keep this player or this player, but a little high level. Yeah, you know, like exactly. give, you know, because the amount of people who have to choose between Michael Harris and Tarek Skubal for ten dollars each <laughs> is, you know, it's a relatively small, but I think it's an interesting discussion. Yes, and that's where our, our first question will come from. Our first email question from James, wondering what everyone's thoughts are on Michael Harris this year and next. So 2024 and beyond, pretty uneven results this past year, and I wonder if he'll ever move into the top of the Braves lineup. I've currently got him slotted in as my last keeper, $10, but could also keep Scoobal at equivalent cost, already keeping Acuna, Olsen, and Harper. So I chose this one because it gives us an opportunity to talk about Michael Harris and just from a mm-hmm. draft perspective, thinking about Harris versus Tarek Skubal, if you do have that decision. Scott, Michael Harris really improved in every way that I wanted to see last year. He mm-hmm. lowered the strikeout rate. He lowered the ground ball rate. He improved against left-handed pitching. He did a lot of really, really good things. He got up to a slow start, there's no doubt. But over the final four months, he was an electric player. The problem, as pointed out in this email, is he bats in the bottom third of the lineup. And I don't know how likely it is that, you know, I think roster resource had him, had his... Harris batting sixth, that's possible. And that would help with the counting stats, but the Braves seem to like him batting ninth too. So I just kind of struggle with where is Harris going to bat? And I think that does change his fantasy value. It does for me. Yeah, I'm not... I'm lower on Harris than the consensus. And I guess I was last year too. Last year it was more about, I, I wondered if he could sustain the performance with some of those unappealing underlying numbers, as you point out the underlying numbers caught up uh, caught up to the overlying numbers ended up with almost exactly the same slash line as he had as a rookie um in a way that's more believable now but yeah it's 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 a pretty big problem him being stuck in the lower third of the lineup and normally i'd say okay if the player performs he'll move up in the lineup let's not stress about where he's going to bat on opening day but i think harris is a unique exception because Acuna, Albies, Riley, Olsen. How much higher can he get than that? You know, those those guys are those guys are in the top four spots. Um, and they're among the best at their position offensively, and they're well proven and they're uh under team control for a while. And how, so how how high could Harris reasonably climb? Uh maybe fifth. Sixth is a little more plausible. If Ozuna but, turns back into a pumpkin, which is possible, then yeah, maybe fifth is the highest. But then they're become because they'd have to kind of rearrange things with Olsen because they probably wouldn't want two left-handers in a row, fourth and fifth. So right. it's it's messy. And you know, you you brought up the other issue of it's nice to have some runners for Acuna when he's hitting all those home runs. It's nice for him to have some guys to to bat to drive in. And so I think the Braves actually kind of like Harris batting ninth for that reason. Um, so I, I, I think the RBI and run production is going to keep him from being a high-end fantasy option, even though he should be very reliable for batting average and should be uh, deliver quality home run and stolen base totals. When it comes to comparing him to Scooble. I think it's pretty close. Mm-hmm. You already are keeping one outfielder there, and I think that's the main thing Harris has going for him is that he's an outfielder who can actually hit, and we feel good about him continuing to hit. Uh, I, I think in most cases I'd lean toward Harris for that reason, as much as I like Scooble. 
But if it's a three outfielder league and you already have one and, and, and you know starting pitching is going to be scarce, I could see going Scoobles' direction. I think six times out of ten, though, I'd say Harris there. The one thing I would say is we had pretty similar discussions about Ozzy Albee's spot in the lineup within the last few years. And obviously it's a, a very different Braves lineup now than it was in 2021 or, or 2020 when we were having these discussions about Albies where, you know, he was batting fifth or sixth and it was kind of a drag because each spot in the lineup over the course of the season is worth about 25 plate appearances. So when you're talking one versus two, it doesn't really matter. Michael Harris averaged fewer than four plate appearances per game last season. It's really hard to get to 600 plate appearances if you're batting you know, that low in the lineup. The only thing I would say, though, is, and it's worth keeping in mind as we get to spring training and we see, oh, this team's batting this guy leadoff, is lineups are transient things, right? They, they are snapshots in time. And there are two players who, if they suffered an injury... Michael Harris would probably take their spot in the lineup. And that's either Ronald Acuna or Ozzy Albies, right? If either of those guys got hurt, all of a sudden Michael Harris is hitting at the top of what would be a diminished lineup because they would not have either Ronald Acuna or Ozzy Albies. Still arguably a top five lineup in baseball with the the guys that the Braves have. So I, I, I never want to write off the potential of, or even just the potential of Ozzy Albies struggling. Ronald Acuna is not going to struggle. But maybe Ozzy Albee's struggling and Michael Harris is super hot and they they swap. That seems unlikely, but like there are paths. And and that's one of the things that I like to keep in mind is how many outs do you have with a player to overcome their their limitations or just outperform their draft cost? I think Michael Harris has some because we're very confident that he's a very, very good hitter. I've got him and Tarek Skubal. I think they're separated by five spots in my my overall rankings. I, I do have Harris a little higher. He's 39th. Tarek Skubal's 44th for me. So, like, I think you're getting a dollar extra in value if you keep Michael Harris over Tarek Skubal. That is not a, a difference that I have any strong convictions about. So, if you want to give Skubal the edge because you're already keeping an outfielder, that's totally fine. He didn't say the scoring format. I think in points leagues, that definitely go Scoobal. Yeah. Because that that's not be, really Harris's format. Sure. That was going to be my next question was, yeah. is it as simple as Harris and Roto, Tarek Scoobal and head-to-head points? These yeah. next two questions come from a different James, and he starts with, hello, Starling, Brandon, and Tyrone. I don't know. Uh, I, that would be the Mets outfield. Starling, all right. Brandon. Oh, sure. Yeah. Taylor would like Scott's opinion on Kent Maeda's draft value, given his thoughts on starting pitching strategy this upcoming season. Also, how concerned are you with his injury from last year? Well, I think whenever we're talking about Maeda, Scott, we're concerned about injury, but signed with the Tigers this off season does help mitigate some of those home run concerns. Mm -hmm. And uh, I know yesterday we did the, if you take away Mitch Keller's worst starts, here are his numbers. Maeda had a 10 earned run start last year and finished with a 423 ERA. If you take that start away, things look a lot better. And in fact, mm-hmm. I mean, 20% of his earned runs came in that one start. Kenta Maeda's XERA was 377. His Sierra was 376. He's currently going outside the top 250 picks in ADP. I, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm kind of interested. How about you? Well, he... Uh, 
my article that came out earlier this week, 56 revealing stats, one of them had to do with Kentamaida, so I'll just read it to you. I didn't even mention that Turner and Run ones. That would have been a good one. What I had for Kentamaida was there may be upside to be found in Kentamaida still, particularly as he heads off to a pitcher's park in Detroit. His 10.9K per nine last year ranked 12th among pitchers with at least 100 innings and his 12.8% swinging strike rate ranked 23rd in 17 appearances after returning from a triceps injury last June. He put together a 336 ERA and 109 whip. I mentioned that him going to Detroit, the the hardest place to hit home runs, that was kind of his biggest problem Mm -hmm. was surrendering home runs. So if he still has that swing and miss ability... Yeah, there's the potential Kenta Maeda could be more useful than his draft status to suggest would suggest. He might only give you 12 starts. So I, I don't think I can move him up that high in my rankings or count on him that heavily as a late-round pick. But there are circumstances where I'd draft him, sure. If you take out that 10 earned run start, his ERA for the season drops to 3-4-6. Wow. <laughs> That's a... Uh, look... I, I don't love the whole cherry picking. All right, take the start out. But I think for uh, for this Certainly when it's just player, one start. Well, yeah. I mean, look, if you want to take out his best start and his worst start, the worst start's still going to have a lot more yeah. uh, impact on that in this instance. So I mentioned Maeda's ADP is uh, 272. He's the 30, uh, 73rd, excuse me, starting pitcher off the board. I have met SP 63, so I'm ahead of ADP. And yeah, I think he's a perfectly fine late round starting pitcher to target. This next question, I'm going to throw it your way, Chris. Interested if you guys had any update or could give a refresher on when a player is in their quote prime and when they're at a risk to fall off. Sure. So one thing is just it's different for every player. And so many, many fantasy players have made the mistake of writing off Nelson Cruz and David Ortiz to name two for a decade because they were over 30 and that the end was coming soon. That being said, I I think generally speaking, if you look at aging curves, there's been a lot of research about this. I pulled up a couple fan graphs articles. Um, The most recent one that I saw was heading into the 2021 season. Players tend to peak around 22, 23, and then hold that peak until about 25, 26, 27. And then there's a gradual decline and you start to see a real drop off once they hit 30. Obviously, that's different for every player. We are talking about aging curves over hundreds of players. And within that hundred hundreds of players, you are going to have dozens of outliers in both directions. You're going to have Keston Hira peaking when he's 22 and you're going to have Adrian Beltre playing well until he's 40. So it's, there's no hard and fast rule. You have to look at skill sets and, and see if they decline or are showing signs of weakness. But generally speaking, yeah, you you expect players in their twenties to play better than players in their thirties. There's not going to be a magic formula though, that, that helps you, ignore risk and or avoid all risk and only find winners. That's not how it works. I I don't know if research backs this up necessarily, just kind of anecdotally. I I feel like uh, the more athletic of a position the player plays, 
the more the steeper that aging curve is. So I don't worry about a first baseman in his thirties as much as I do a shortstop or a catcher. So that's I I don't know how whether the the aging curves have been updated. The the one thing that I always remembered is you know, and this is Bill James writing in like the the two thousands. So we're we're talking a, a lifetime ago in baseball terms. You know, probably I think it was a two thousand eight book that I was reading it. But you know, he write wrote about the the idea of old player skills versus young player skills, and how guys who are unathletic early in their career and walk a lot and hit a lot of home runs and strike out a lot skills that we associate with older players, and and generally speaking, strikeout rate increases as you age walk rate increases as you age as well those guys tend to age worse and i think it makes sense because they have fewer skills to fall back on right like if you're a gosh i'm really going to age myself with this reference but like a jack cust type you know like you've got the one trick and once your bat slows down you got nothing else to fall back on whereas like francisco lindor does everything well so if he loses a step, he's still got a decent amount of, of skills to fall back on. But that's, again, based on a very different time in baseball. And it could be that the opposite is true. But I, I think of someone like Paul Goldschmidt and the way he's aged. Now, yes, he is a first baseman. He's been one of the most athletic first baseman his entire time in the league. And he's aged incredibly well. And I think that's a big part of it. Let's take our final break. When we return, we've got a few more questions here on Fantasy Baseball Today. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Welcome in. Let's continue on with our email questions. This one's from Nick. In an eight-team daily categories league with large rosters, I am strong at shortstop with Francisco Lindor and C.J. Abrams, but weak at third base. Would you offer either of them straight up for Gunnar Henderson? I would offer cj abrams straight up Mel, hang on a second eight team daily categories league with large ross that's a really weird format i wonder if the the outlier stolen base production that we expect from abrams becomes more valuable in a league that shallow especially given that it's a daily categories league uh, i i like category outliers in head-to-head categories leagues because when you're chopping up stats into smaller and smaller samples, the more prolific a player is at contributing that stat, the more impactful, the more you can count on them from week to week, basically, or day-to-day in this case. So, I don't know. I, I You need a third baseman, I get it. 
I guess it's fine to trade Abrams for Henderson. I know just looking at my rankings, that's something I would suggest doing, but I'm, I'm a little reluctant to do it for that reason. All right, this next one's from Griffin. I know Scott's approach to pitching and the glob has been to prioritize Ks and upside. I wanted to see if that approach would ever change. I am in a 14-team Roto Keeper League with quality starts, and my offense is stacked. Kyle Tucker, Jordan Alvarez, Shohei Otani, Adolis Garcia, Austin Riley, Jazz Chisholm, Christian Yelich. You get the deal. I was planning on filling my staff with boring, high-floor starting pitchers since so much of my resources are tied up in hitting. My general question is, would you adjust your pitching philosophy based on roster construction? Mm, no. And I, I think this that that my approach to the pitching is mainly geared for categories leagues and especially roto leagues. Cause the, the thinking is in a roto league, you kind of have to be good at everything. Mm-hmm. You're going, you, it doesn't matter how good your offense is if you're bad at pitching. And as somebody who was mostly invested in that boring class of starting pitchers last year, I can tell you my pitching wrecked some otherwise pretty good Roto teams. I'm emphasizing strikeouts in part so I can give my pitching staff a higher floor because I see strikeouts as being the most reliable of the pitching stats in a particularly unreliable environment for pitching. So if you really commit to the strikeouts, you can assure yourself a high finish in that category, which will raise your overall pitching floor. And then you can hope that it translates to a good ERA and whip too, because you know, miss bats usually do. So that's the, that's the theory behind it. And I don't think the quality of my offense would change that. approach. But, but I, I, I think, and I could be wrong, but it might, be the the point of this question would be he doesn't have a lot of resources to spend on pitcher so with limited resources should he still be prioritizing because the the high strikeout guys who get drafted later Mm -hmm. are gonna have some serious flaws where like you can make the case that like you know your jose barrios merrill kelly yeah your jose barrios and merrill kelly types are one just more likely to get you to like 190 strikeouts or 170 strikeouts, whatever number, just because they'll I, kind I of brute force their way there. I don't think it's going to be enough. I, I think, I, I think rather than assuring yourself a hole, like you, you got to give yourself a way out of the hole. Like Jose Barrios isn't going to help you that much in ERA or whip or strikeouts, you mm-hmm. know? That's my feeling on it. I mean, I obviously I have yet to put it to the test, but I, I think I would rather just gamble on Chris Sale and Nick Pavetta and et cetera, um, rather than a sh- rather than hope that the Jose Barrios and Shane Bieber's and whatever else, and probably even lower in than that, right? keep me in in the mid-range at ERA. I don't trust them to do that. Mm-hmm. Quality starts might add another element to that as well, Scott, because I feel like those higher floor guys, they are more likely to give you quality starts, right? Mm-hmm. Guys like, you know, Barrios, like we just said. I mean, I feel like he always ranks pretty highly in quality starts versus maybe an upside arm going around him like, mm-hmm. I don't know, Michael King or 
Emmett Sheehan or someone like that, you know, quality starts might, might change a little bit. Are you still though? I mean, are you going to compete with the people who actually drafted aces? Are you going to be able to compete with them in, in, in quality starts? I, I, yes, you're right. I mean, if, if, if you want to sell out for that category, you could try. I, I don't think you could expect to finish that high. Um, I don't know. Strikeouts kind of feels like home runs to me where it has its effect spreads through all the other categories. I think in this specific instance where this guy's got Tucker, Alvarez, Otani, Riley, like that's maybe trade a hitter for a really good pitch. Yeah, you might have too much hitting because like this is something that, that I've like. You only need to win the category by one stat. Right. That's that's what I was going to say. In, in one of my leagues last year, I won stolen bases by 40 or something. And it's like, by the end of the season, it's like, well, I wish I could have traded some of those steals for a little more somewhere else. And so that that's one thing that I'm thinking is like, you almost might have overkill on hitting in this instance to the point where like trading... Gosh, it's hard to figure out. Adolis Garcia would probably be the guy that I would try to trade, but I know a lot. He's probably also undervalued relative to what he's likely to give. Not necessarily. I mean, he's being drafted after where he's finished each of the last two years. That's fair, but he's still going as a third, fourth round pick. I mean, if you can get a pitcher of fair value, uh, I don't know, Pablo Lopez. Uh, yeah, that that's what I'm like. Even Yama like Polo, something like that, you know, I know you guys hate him. But like, I think the idea of trading like a Dolis Garcia for Aaron Nola could actually really benefit you because there, yes, the ERA could be really bad. But as we've talked about a lot, he gives you the nice floor of the the big strikeout totals at the end, big inning totals, useful whip, even if the ERA is not great, although it is an even year. Well, I I think Adolis Garcia is a sell high in keeper leagues anyway. Yeah. Uh, he's much older than you probably realize, given how, given his short time as an elite player, and uh, I don't think his skills are going to age particularly well. So I, I don't think you need him on this team. I, I think he would be the one to shop absolutely. If Nola's the best you could do for him, I think that's fine. I would also say Jazz Chisholm. Just I, 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 I think you're selling low though. Yeah, the, I, I think you're either selling low or this might be blasphemous for as a Marlins fan. I think you might be selling high. Ah, how dare you? All right, we've got five questions left. Let's uh, keep it moving here. Rapid fire gets to the end from Mike. I'm a commissioner for a league that's split between wanting batting average or OBP in a five by five category league. Instead of choosing one or the other, we decided to make it a six by six league and keep both. Problem is we need another pitching category for a format like this. Would it be better to add quality starts or holds? I feel holds would add value to relievers and make the league more balanced. But give me your thoughts, Chris. I mean, oh. those are completely different categories. Quality starts and holds. I mean, it completely changes the dynamic of the league. Yeah. So I think quality starts. You run the risk of double counting, right? Like you're already doing that with OBP, though, by having OBP and batting average. Sure. I, I was thinking it would be. It really should just be a five by five. Yeah, I I hate when you yeah. start adding categories. If you want to replace batting average with OBP, fine. If you want to place but place home runs with slugging percentage or total bases, something that's uh, just kind I of an expanded that. That version me, of home that makes me feel runs. Icky. 
I think that makes more sense though than just adding sure. these categories and making it impossible to focus on things yeah. in the draft and and double counting things. And I think the traditional way is nice and clean and works. I understand it's it's it it values stats that uh, have kind of fallen out of favor as we've we've learned more about how baseball works. But I think either you replace stats in the traditional five by five. Mm-hmm. Or you just stick to the traditional five by five. I would say with regards to the pitching categories, quality starts will change the shape of your player pool less. Quality starts, you're not, you're drafting the same guys. Like if you're just adding quality starts, either replacing wins or like there's this big like kill the win. We need quality starts. And like it really doesn't change players value that much. Guys who get a lot of quality starts also tend to get a lot of wins. Quality starts are a little more predictable, but I, I, if you add quality starts to wins, nothing about your strategy changes. If you add holds, that changes it a lot because now you have to really compete for, for relievers, but it also opens up the player pool and create makes a lot more players viable. I, I do think... Another potential upside, if you're going to do the six by six thing, potential upside of going quality starts and wins, two things that essentially reward good starting Mm -hmm. pitching, what we traditionally mean by starting pitching. I think that's kind of nice. It it prevents manipulation of, you know, these these like swingman types or or long relievers uh, using them to kind of cheaply move up ERA and whip. If you're double counting mm-hmm. accomplishments that purely belong to starting pitching, starting pitchers, you're going to have people more invested in starting pitchers. And I don't think that's a bad thing. Still, I'd rather just stick to five by five. Here is the answer. Five by five, either batting average or OBP, flip a coin. Do wins plus quality starts as one category, saves plus holds as another category. Boom. I just I'm in a saves plus holds league. I, I think it's vastly preferable to just saves. All right. Well, I said, uh, let's keep it moving. We didn't keep it moving. So I'm going to save these final (laughs) questions, final four questions for next week's mailbag. Okay. I I do have to ask, do you know who the three names in this next one are? Dear Mick, Keith and Ronnie. It's easy, Chris. Come on. Oh my God. It's the Beatles, man. (laughs) Okay. So you do know, right? I looked it up before. Okay. Okay. Yeah, there's no way, dude. Like, what are we talking about? The stop now? What is it? Tell me. It's the Beatles. It is the Beatles. It's not the Beatles. Okay. It's the Rolling Stones. (laughs) Oh, Miss Jagger. Yeah. That's the only one I could have named. The moves like Jagger. We're going to wrap there for Scott and Chris. I am Frank. Thanks, as always, for tuning in to Fantasy Baseball today. Please make sure to follow and leave a five-star rating on Apple or Spotify. And we'll be back again next week. Bye-bye. Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons 
of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team. 